Look at this, this thought with me. When Jesus says, I am the door, he is revealing to us that he is the singular access point that we are required to go through if we desire to experience the kind of life we were originally designed to possess. Jesus is referring to the enemy here in John 10. We have a very real enemy who's always trying to convince you to pick a different door than the door that leads to life through Jesus. He's trying to offer you a different alternative access point. He's trying to say, oh, you want to get in there? You, you, you want to experience life? You want to you really experience what this life is all about? Like, like try this door. Our enemy is always trying to get us to access the life that we really want, like deep in our soul, through a different means, through a different access point. Any door that is not Jesus is illegitimate and is not going to take us to where we want to go, even if, even if this other door promises it, right? There's lots of other doors that promise the outcome that we think we want in life. Any other door that is not Jesus is illegitimate. And, and the Bible is really telling us here that these other doors lead to destruction. They lead to a path that we do not want. Said so we are in week three of a teaching series we've been in called I Am. And I think, you know, from my perspective at least, so much of the purpose for this series is because, uh, you know, what, what I can tell, the best I can tell, is that everywhere we look right now, uh, we see lots of different opinions about who Jesus is. And I think that, that uh, a lot of the reason, you know, you know for that, or, the fact, or I guess the fact that there are so many, so many opinions about who Jesus is, differing opinions about who he is, sort of speaks to the fact that he is still one of the most controversial figures in the world today, right? I mean, it speaks to this idea that, that, that you know, Jesus is very polarizing. Uh, he has gone down as one of the most controversial figures in all of human history. And... Uh, and, and I, think, I think because he's been so controversial, it has, it has uh, um, you know, th- that's why there's been so many different opinions about who he is, opinions about what he taught, opinions about what his mission was, opinions about what he should be called. In his book, uh, Jesus Through the Centuries, Yaroslav Pelikan says this, he says, regardless of what anyone may think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars, B.C., A.D. It is by his name that millions curse, and in his name that millions pray. So what Pelican's getting at here is what he's really saying. He's saying, like, people can speculate all they want about who Jesus is. But what they can't speculate about is the impact that he has had in this world. How many of y'all know that you've got to be a pretty important person when you literally split time in half? pretty big deal, you know? Uh, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's significant. And so Jesus, regardless of, of our opinion or, or anybody else's opinion, uh, you know, Jesus, you know, he lived 2,000 years ago. He walked this earth 2,000 years ago, and it is undeniable that he is still impacting lives today. It's, he's still impacting us today. A lot of this is the reason why, if you're taking notes in this series, we want to get our minds around not just what Jesus did, but who he is. We want to get our minds around not just what Jesus did, but who he is. We want to get our minds around who he claimed to be. We want to get our minds around who he claimed to be. In uh, Matthew chapter 8, there's this famous story where the disciples are on this boat with Jesus, and they are crossing the Sea of Galilee. And many of you probably are familiar with the story, but as they're crossing uh, the Sea of Galilee, this storm comes upon them. And it's a pretty serious storm. I mean, big old 
waves, big time wind, and the disciples are scared out of their mind. Uh, they think that the boat is going to sink. They're, they're, they're not sure what to do. And Jesus, he comes out from the belly of this boat, and he, uh, what does he do? He, he rebukes the storm. The Bible tells us that he, he rebukes the wind, he rebukes the storm, and that the storm obeys his commands. I mean, that's, that's pretty remarkable. What I love about this story maybe the most is the response from the disciples in verse 27. This is what they said. It says, it says the disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked. Even the wind and waves obey him. Now, what I love about this response is that the disciples seem to be less focused on what Jesus just did and much more focused on who he is. Right? I mean, I mean they had just witnessed a pretty incredible miracle. I mean, it's, it, it's a showstopper. And these guys, I mean, it's almost like, yeah, they're like, yeah, 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 like that happened. But like, who is this man? Who is this, this guy? The disciples were amazed, Matthew 8, 27 tells us. Other translations tell us that these guys were terrified. Uh, I, I kind of I like that translation, but, but they, they're somewhere between amazed and terrified. Have you ever been uh, both at the same time? You ever lived within the tension of being amazed and being terrified at the exact same moment? Like you see something that amazes you, but it also terrifies you. This is, this is really like what's going on with the disciples here in this story. They're, they're, they're amazed and they're terrified at what they just saw. And what's interesting to me, it's in their amazement, it's in their fear, it's in their curiosity where they really ask the essential, essential question that everything comes down to. Who is this man? Who is this man? And in this series, what we've been doing is we've just been letting Jesus answer this question for himself. We've been letting Jesus, in his own words, answer this question for us. In this series, what we've been learning so far is that all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus gives himself some pretty shocking names. In fact, these shocking names are still impacting us today. I mean, repeatedly, he makes some shocking claims about himself. We've talked about this before, but over and over, he uses the phrase, I am, to refer to himself, which may not seem like a very big deal to you or me on the surface until you realize that the name I am is the very same name that God gave himself in the Old Testament during this conversation with Moses, a very famous encounter that Moses and God have, and God just names himself, I am. And so what we've been finding out in this series so far is that Jesus seems to to, in, in the Gospel of John, intentionally use the name I am to make this claim that he is the God of the Old Testament. Now, that's a pretty shocking claim. That's a pretty shocking, I mean, that'd be a shocking claim today, right? I mean, anybody just, just kind of ups and says they're God, like, you know, how are you responding to that claim, right? I mean, this is no, no different back then, maybe even more so in their culture that is, you know, uh, you know, very, very religious and, and, and God-focused. And so Jesus shows up on the scene, and he, he claims to be God. That's a pretty shocking claim. Pretty shocking claim if you're a first-century Jew. I mean, it's, 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 it's claims like this that, that, that would, would cause Jesus to, to sort of begin with this large crowd of people when he's speaking, and then, and then by the time he's done talking, he's just got a handful of people left over. It claims like this. Like, what did he just say? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, can't, I can't stay any longer. I'm out, I'm out, I'm, I'm out. So his claims of deity, his claims that he was the God of the Old Testament, right, are, are, are the claims that would ultimately cost him his life. And what I think is so interesting about Jesus is, is today it seems to me like he is still getting in trouble for what he said. And what I mean by that is 
You know, the majority of people don't take issue with Jesus over what he did. The majority of people take issue with Jesus over what he said. Right? I mean, the majority of people don't, don't, don't have an issue with the fact that Jesus healed somebody who was sick or that he fed people who were hungry. The majority of people who reject Jesus and struggle with Jesus, and the reason why the name of Jesus is, is so like, controversial and one that people don't like to necessarily release out of their mouth is not because of what he did, it's because of what he said and what he claimed to be. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. In fact, there's a lot of things Jesus did that, w- that would you know, cause, you know, compel people to be drawn to him, and many people were drawn to him. That's why crowds of people were drawn to Jesus over the things he was doing. I mean, he was incredible, but, but the, the reason why the crowds got smaller was because he said some things about himself that just they, they, could, they couldn't stomach, they couldn't handle. And so in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at these statements. We're looking at these claims. We're looking at these shocking claims Jesus makes in the Gospel of John, these things that he says about himself. And today we want to look at, at, at the third I am statement in this series so far. And if you have your Bibles or you want to look on the screen, John chapter 10 is where we're going to be. I'm going to look at these first 10 scriptures in John chapter 10. Let me just read them to you and then we will, we will, we will, we will take off. So, um, into the message, not, not out of here. So, okay. John chapter 10, verse 1. I tell you the truth, Jesus is speaking. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Verse 5, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Verse 6, Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Here it is right here, verse 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus here in John chapter 10, he makes a shocking claim where he refers to himself as the gate. Other translations use the word door. He's saying here, I am the gate or I am the the door. Now, what I want to do here as we get started is I want to give you like full context to John chapter 10. I want you to understand like what's really happening here in this story. And so the context to John chapter 10 is that Jesus is giving a blatant rebuke to corrupt leadership. That's what's happening here in John chapter 10. He's rebuking corrupt leadership. Now, look at, look, look at this verse 1 of John 10. He says this. He says, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. So what Jesus is getting at here is he is saying like there is an appropriate way to enter into the sheep pen, right? There is an appropriate way to enter. And he says like anyone who tries to enter by by an alternative access point, he calls them a thief and a robber. Now what you got to understand about this This claim that Jesus makes here in John 10 is that it is aimed at the religious leaders of his day. It's aimed at the Pharisees. 
And, and the Pharisees would have essentially been guilty of this very thing. The, 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 the Pharisees, what they were doing is they, they were basically attempting to lead people to God by an alternative means, by an alternative access point, through, through ways that, that uh, God did not require. They, they, they were essentially adding a, a greater burden onto the people when it came to following God. And so this is essentially what's going on here. So, so Jesus is really giving a leadership challenge to the Pharisees. He is giving a blatant rebuke to their corrupt leadership. That's, that's really the context. Now, what I want to do is give you kind of the, the, the setting. Let me expand on this and give you the, the greater setting. Okay, so John chapter 10, Jesus is here, and he, he's speaking with the Pharisees. Now, this is a, a politically loaded and charged environment in which Jesus is having this conversation. I think at first glance, we, we can kind of think that maybe this is sort of a, like, like a cute devotional, you know, like, like uh, you read about sheep, cute shepherds, you know, like this pen that they live in or whatever, and you can kind of get this like cute sort of story picture in your mind of some devotional that's on the wall or on your, your refrigerator. You kind of can have this image of these like precious moments, ceramic figurines, you know, or Hallmark, you know, whatever, shepherds and stuff. And, it, and let me just tell you, like, that is not what's going on here in this story, all right? This is a politically loaded and charged environment that Jesus steps into and begins a conversation with the Pharisees. Now, the reason why it's, it, it's such a politically charged environment is really because of everything the Israelites have been through, the Jewish people have been through in their history. And let me just tell you a little bit more about that. Something that doesn't always get a lot of airtime in the church uh, is, is this period of time that exists between the conclusion of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So the end of the book of Malachi and the beginning of the book of Matthew, there is actually a 400-year period of time that exists between these two, uh, you know, two covenants, really. And it is referred to as the 400 years of silence. So basically, this was a 400-year period where God did not communicate with the people of Israel the same way he had always done. So before, he had spoken to the, to the uh, people of Israel through prophets, through priests, through kings. And now they're in this 400-year period of silence where it seems to them as if God is far off and distant. God is uninvolved. Like, where, where is he? He's not really communicating or speaking to us like he once did. That's why when Jesus shows up on the scene and God breaks the silence in the book of Matthew, it's, it's like a really, really big deal. But the 400 years of silence, like we don't have a lot of history, at least in, in the Holy Bible, uh, about what happens you know, to the, the, the people of Israel during those days. But we do have you know, extra biblical content that we can read and, and find out more of, of what took place. And we, if you're history buffs, you can kind of understand what took place Back then, one of the, the, the most significant things that happened during this 400 years of silence happened in 332 B.C., and that's when Alexander the Great conquered the entire world. It's a big deal. And one of the interesting things about Alexander the Great is that Alexander the Great uh, wasn't just interested in conquering people militarily. He was also very interested in conquering, conquering people culturally. He, he wanted to take it to the next level. He wanted to expand this Greek influence all over the world. It's, it's what is called Hellenization. And this is a word that we see pop up in the New Testament more than once, that they're Hellenized or the Hellenists. Hellenization is this. It is the historical spread of ancient Greek culture, religion, and to a lesser extent, language over foreign peoples conquered by Greeks. Okay, so this is what happened during the 400 years of silence. 
Alexander the Great conquers the world, and he doesn't just want to conquer people through force. He wants to conquer them culturally, so he wants Greek culture. He wants Greek theater, Greek values. He wants Greek, Greek stories to, to sort of take over all of the, the major cultural forms that existed, and this is exactly what happened. They, they, they uh, uh, continued to try to Hellenize or, or, or essentially indoctrinate the world into Greek culture over a long period of time. And so years go by, decades go by. Uh, I mean, hundreds of years pass by, and this is what's going on. So within about 150 years, Israel has adopted a ton of Greek culture. They, they, they've essentially become Hellenized. They have adopted a ton of Greco-Roman practices, and they, they, they've essentially become indoctrinated into all of Greek culture. Now, the, the reason why this matters is because when, when this began to happen, and, they, and they, they became really, really much more Greek than they were Hebrew, they began to really lose touch with their Hebrew roots. And when they began to lose touch with their Hebrew roots, in order for them to actually begin, be able to continue worshiping God, they had to do something significant. They had to translate the Old Testament from its original language in Hebrew into Greek. In order for them to even read it, they'd become so indoctrinated, they'd become so Hellenized that they, they had to translate it from Hebrew into Greek just to be able to worship God. This is really significant of what, what was going on. And this is, again, the context of, of what we're, we're dealing with. And so what happened here is that many of the Jewish leaders of their day became seduced by this vision of Hellenization. And when they became seduced by it, they then gave themselves over to pagan worship. And the reason why that matters is because as they gave themselves to pagan worship, it led to the desecration of the temple of God. Now, the temple is really where, where like the presence of God was housed. That's what they believed. That this, is, this was a, a, a structure, a building that was reserved and dedicated to God. Well, when they gave themselves up over to pagan worship, this, you know, they stopped all the, all the sacrifices. They, they uh, put up all of these pagan idols you know, in, in the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and the temple became completely desecrated. About 160 B.C., so this is 160 years now before Jesus was born, 160 B.C., there was a group of Jewish people known as the Maccabees. You've heard of them, maybe. They sort of rose up. They got tired of the way they were living. They got tired of the oppression. They got tired of the temple, you know, kind of, kind of being treated the way uh, it, it had been. And they sort of rose up. And as a result, it, it erupted into the Maccabean Wars, which was led by a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus. Sort of an important figure in, in their history, right? And, and uh, through his men, in using these like guerrilla warfare tactics, they, they were miraculously able to uh, sort of overthrow the opposing powers of their day and establish a nearly 100-year dynasty in which Israel was led by Jewish kings. Significant situation here, okay? This is, again, before Jesus was born in the 400 years of silence. So Judas Maccabeus, right, he leads this rebellion. They overthrow the opposing powers. Uh, this is what he, he looks to do. He looks to now cleanse and dedicate the temple once again. And when he goes to do that, he uses this oil to, to sort of cleanse the temple. Uh, and, and when he was finally finished cleansing the temple, they go and they dedicate it uh, back to God. He has just, just enough oil remaining to let it burn for a couple days, as like a symbol of what had happened. Well, this oil miraculously burned for eight days. And this is, this is 
why we have Hanukkah. This is what they celebrate at Hanukkah. This is the eight candles. They celebrate the eight days that the oil miraculously burned. And, uh, and so the reason why this story kind of matters, the reason why I give you all that context and background is because of what is happening in John chapter 10. In fact, look at this story with me, or this verse with me, um, John 10, 22. It says, then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. This is just, just a chunk of scriptures down. It's the same chapter that we're in here with Jesus making this I am statement. It says, then came the feast of dedication. Well, the word Hanukkah literally means dedication in the Hebrew language. So this is the feast of Hanukkah. That's the context of what is happening here. And so what we see in this story right away is Jesus confronts these Pharisees. He confronts this corrupt leadership. We see that Jesus is in the middle of some very delicate cultural narratives. Narratives about history. He's dealing with some very delicate cultural narratives about prophecy, you know, that, that, that had taken place, that they had, they had been hanging on to and believing about, a delicate cultural narrative about power. And ultimately, if you know the story of, of, of Israel, which you know, a lot of us would understand this, is that, is that their 100-year period of peace and self-governance, it, it, it didn't last, right? Uh, it, it didn't last. I mean, the, the world that Jesus was born into was, was, was a time where the, Israel, the Israelis were under uh, massive oppression because eventually the Romans would come along. They would come into power as a war machine like the world had never seen before, and they would dominate nearly everybody in their path. And, and so this is sort of the setting. Like they, 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 they were oppressed, then they got their freedom, and, and it lasted for 100 years, and they rededicated the temple, and now they're, 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 they're oppressed again. And even though they're oppressed again, there's, there's this like belief that is rising up inside of them that, that the Messiah is, is going to come. They, remember, the Old Testament gives them this promise that they're going to be the head and not the tail. The Old Testament gives them this promise that if they obeyed the law, the nations would come to their light. And so after all that they had been through, you know, all of this, this, this oppression, all of this like pagan worship, all of this Hellenization and being indoctrinated into Greek culture, the people have this tremendous expectation for the coming Messiah, that he's, he's going to show up here at some point soon. And so this is the context in John 10 when Jesus is giving this talk to the Pharisees, rebuking them for their corrupt leadership. He is literally critiquing them at the festival of Hanukkah. Now that's, that's the reason why that's a significant thing is because during Hanukkah, this is when the Jewish people remember their glorious past. They remember when they, they overcame their opposition, when they were able to get the temple back, cleanse it and dedicate it. It's when they remember their glorious past and when they look toward their glorious future. It's a big deal. And as they're looking towards their glorious future, Jesus is essentially making this claim here that these Pharisees, your religious leaders right here, they will not be the ones who will lead this nation into their promised future. That's a significant statement. That's a significant rebuke. Can you imagine the tension that you would feel as an onlooker of this conversation. Like, what did he just say to these guys? That is, what did he just say? This is the context in which Jesus is making this claim about himself, that he is the door or he is the gate. It's a big deal. Jesus says here in John 10, he says basically to these Pharisees that he's rebuking, he says, hey, I am God, and God is like a door, God is like a gate. Shocking 
claim. He's saying that he is the way by which we come in and go out and find pasture. And let's be honest here. Jesus is a door? Sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? I, I mean, I can see God as many things, but, but a gate or a door, you know, like that, that's, that's, that's a more difficult one. How are we supposed to relate to God as a door? How are we supposed to relate to God as a gate? And I want to just give you uh, like, like, like a few practical ways to relate to God as a door. And, and let me just kind of give these to you, and we'll continue to give you the, the, the background and the context of what's really happening as we go. Number one, the door provides protection. The door provides protection. Now, how many of you, when you moved into where you currently live, you immediately changed the locks? Anybody? No? This is not going to work, okay? Like, like, I mean, you guys are just crazy. crazy. You don't change the locks? Maybe I grew up in a much bigger city context, but like, yeah, you change the locks, people, okay? Right? You don't just, like, like if your realtor or your landlord comes over to you and says, hey, why don't you can just use the same key from the previous owner or the previous tenant. Like, that's, at least in my world, never going to work, okay? Maybe it works for some of you, but uh, that's not going to work. The, the door is meant to provide protection, meant to provide protection. Now, let me ask, how well do you think you would sleep at night if your house did not have a door on it? How well do you think you'd sleep? Every night at our house, like, like just about without fail, we get upstairs, get ready to go to bed. I can even be in bed. Which, you know, if I'm in bed, I mean, I know there's like, there's like, I'm not really in bed for the night. There's like something else I need to get out of bed and go do, right? And, and usually, every night, my wife will say, are the doors locked? Are the doors locked? I'm like, yeah, I think the doors are locked. Are you sure they're locked? No, I'm not 100%. I'm out of the bed, and I am locking the doors, all right? That's what is going on in our, in our house. The door provides protection. I, I mean, you just know you would not sleep very well if, if it was time to go get in bed and just snuggle up for the night and you knew there was literally no door on your house. Like, like how, would you, how would you sleep? You wouldn't, right? You'd be like, this is not okay. You wouldn't feel very safe. I mean, you can have all the other walls constructed. Like everything else is protected, but there is no door on your house. You don't feel very safe. The door provides protection. Think about for those of you who, who ever travel, you know, uh, get on an airplane, think about the purpose of, you know, TSA. When you go through the security checkpoints, TSA is essentially the gatekeeper to the aviation world, aren't they? They, they, they are there to permit access to the aviation world, but they are also there to, to prevent certain people or certain things from, from being brought onto the airplanes that should not be there. Now, in John 10... The Pharisees really viewed themselves as the gatekeepers to the kingdom of God. They had this view of themselves, that it was their job. But in reality, they weren't providing any sort of protection for the people. You see, their thinking here was that, was that you know, Moses brought the people out of slavery, and then he brought them into the promised land. And so they viewed that as, as sort of their responsibility. That it was going to be their, it's their job to sort of bring these people out of oppression and bring them into the kingdom that God is building, that he's eventually going to establish well, Jesus comes along. Man, he, he is just, he doesn't even care. Like, I mean, he doesn't, he just, he just says it. He comes in to this situation and he tells them that what they're doing is actually the opposite. That their leadership is not letting people in, that it's actually keeping people out, including themselves. This is, this is what Jesus is getting at here. And this is in, in verse 8, this is when he says to them, you know, 
Clearly, he says, all whoever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. He's referring to the Pharisees as sheep, as robbers. It's a direct rebuke to them that their spiritual leadership has basically done nothing but steal from God. He's, He's showing the contrast here. And even when you get down to John 10, 10, which we'll get to in a minute, when he says, the thief comes to steal, but I've come to give, Jesus is contrasting the difference in his leadership and their leadership. That his leadership is, has come to give life, to add to them. But, but for the Pharisees, their leadership, just, it just takes, it steals. It steals from God. It adds you know, all of these extra requirements and burden to the people that it's not, it's not a giving type of leadership. It's a taking kind of leadership. So the door provides protection. And Jesus wants you to understand this. He wants you to understand that he's the door and he provides protection for you and for me, for those who have come in through him. So the first century context is that, you know, in, in, in their world at night, it would have been very customary for a shepherd to gather his sheep together and place them in some sort of pen to protect them at night, right? To keep them from wolves or any, anybody that would want to steal them. It, it very customary to g- gather them all together, usher them into this pen. Um, sometimes the shepherd would, would, would gather them in a cave. Sometimes he would, he, they, they, would, they would be gathered, you know, in an area surrounded by fencing, sort of made of branches or whatever. Other times it'd be, they'd be gathered into a pen constructed of, of, you know, large stones or large rocks, and to make sure that this shepherd could control what came in and what came out of that area, there would only be one entrance. So, I mean, think about a cave, right? I mean, there, there's one way in, right? Uh, and, and that's why it would be a good place to gather his sheep and, and put them in there because there's only one access point. There's only one entrance. And so in, in the first century context, the shepherd would literally sleep at the entrance to the sheep pen, to the cave, to this pen that he had created out of rocks or branches. It would sleep at the entrance like a protective guard. Nothing could come in via that opening or leave through it without his blessing or permission. So think about this, this area where all of this, these sheep have been sort of herded into, and now it's, it's nighttime, everyone's going to sleep, and this shepherd lays down and sleeps in the doorway. He's essentially saying, like, like, anybody who wants to harm these sheep of mine, they have to go through me. Anyone who wants to, to steal from them, anybody who wants to hurt them in any way has to go through me because the shepherd lays down and sleeps at the entrance to the pen. The door provides protection. The other thing a door provides is the door provides a moment of decision as well. Have you ever stood at a door and wondered to yourself what was on the other side? You ever just been curious like that? I, I think I was one of the most curious kids ever. You know, I, I just, if there, if there was something, a button to push, a door to open, I mean, I, I, I'm always like, I wonder what's, I know I, I'm not supposed to, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that. Doors always tend to lead somewhere, right? I mean, and there's, there's a few occasions, you know, where, you, you know, uh, you're like, yeah, that door leads to nowhere, but Doors tend to always lead somewhere. There's always, typically always something on the other side. When you stand in front of a door, you essentially have a decision to make. Are you going to walk through it? Are you going to walk through it and experience what is on the other side? Now, a door has really two purposes in, in, in the Greek language when it's used here. It's, it's, it's a literal door, but it also means an opportunity, that there is essentially before you this opportunity, and are you going to 
Are you, are you going to take it? Are, are you going to take what is before you? Are you going to experience what is before you? Now, instinctively, we seem to know how to determine whether or not a certain door is one we would actually want to enter, right? I mean, walking through a dark alley, and you see this low-lit doorway, like, you just instinctively know, I'm not interested in walking through that door, right? I mean, you just know there are certain doors that we, have, that we see or experience in life, we're like, yeah, absolutely not. I'm never walking through that door. Instinctively, we seem to know this, and yet, what I find interesting is that the doors that we should avoid in life are not always easy to determine, we seem to have this instinct where, like, in, in, in reality, we know, yeah, I don't want to walk through there. I'm not going to go to that side of town. I'm going to stay away from that area. But when it comes to, like, the doors of life, we seem to struggle. The instinct seems to go out the window because these doors that we should avoid are not always as easy to determine. Let me ask you, have you ever walked through a door in life that you later wished you hadn't? Like, you thought it was going to lead to a different outcome. Now there's regret. You know, I think that that's, that's the reality. You know, every, every person who walks through a door, they don't walk through the door thinking like, hey, I'm going to regret this. Like, you know. They walk through a door thinking like it's, it's going to lead them to a certain kind of outcome. But there's a lot of people in this room. There's a lot of people we know. I mean, a lot of us have this story ourselves of walking through certain doors in life only to wish later that we hadn't had walked through that door. See, we have a very real enemy. Jesus is referring to the enemy here in John 10. We have a very real enemy who's always trying to convince you to pick a different door than the door that leads to life through Jesus. He's trying to offer you a different alternative access points. He's trying to say, oh, you want to get in there? You, you, you want to experience life? You want to you really experience what this life is all about? Like, like try this door. Our enemy is always trying to get us to access the life that we really want, like deep in our soul, through a different means, through a different access point. John 10.10 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is the contrast in leadership between the Pharisees and between Jesus. This is the contrast between our spiritual enemy and what Jesus does for us as well. There are a lot of doors in life, and those doors all lead somewhere. A lot of times we live as if the answers to life sort of exist behind door one, door two, door three. You know, you ever, you ever feel that? Like, like, you have these options, and then go this way, go this way, could go this way. People walk through certain doors all the time thinking, like, this leads to the kind of life that they want. That's why people get, you know, addicted to things. That's why, that's why alcohol becomes a huge issue for some people. Uh, people open up certain doors to, to things like the occult or to witchcraft, you know, I, I, See people, you know, thinking like, I'm just going to go try to, you know, maybe talk to a medium here and see what they got to say, sort of conjure something up. And they think like it's all innocent and fine, but it's like absolutely not. Absolutely not. Let me just tell you, like, if, there, if that is a thing, that, like, it should not be, okay? And, uh, and so there's doors and they all lead to somewhere. And the enemy is always trying to get you to, to, to use a door other than Jesus to get to where you want to go. It's, 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 a, it's a tale as old as time, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's the way he, he worked in the garden. It's the way he's worked all throughout history to try to get us to access the kind of life that we want through an alternative means. 
Any door that is not Jesus is illegitimate and is not going to take us to where we want to go. I mean, that'll preach all day long. Any door other than Jesus is illegitimate and is not going to take us to where we want to go, even if, even if this other door promises it, right? There's lots of other doors that promise the outcome that we think we want in life. Any other door that is not Jesus is illegitimate. And, and the Bible is really telling us here that these other doors lead to destruction. They lead to a path that we do not want. Some doors in life, they just, they aren't so obviously negative though, right? Like some we can avoid because we're like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to like go dabble in those things. And, but there's other doors that just aren't so obvious. Like, like in many ways, they present themselves to be good options. We can think like, this is a great opportunity for me. Or we can think like, this is a great opportunity for my kid. We can think, I'm going to use this opportunity to expand my influence, whatever that means. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to build a bigger home. Big, build bigger barns, do whatever, you know, there's a parable about that. Going to use this opportunity to just make more money, do whatever, do whatever I want. If you're taking notes, you got to catch this thought. What we call an opportunity, God often calls a distraction. What we call an opportunity, God often calls a distraction. Never been easier than now to become distracted, wouldn't you agree? And I think as a result, we become great at doing things that don't really matter. I'm really good at doing things that don't matter. Any other door we try to use to get us to the life we are looking for will always take something from us. Always, every single time. And I, I could, I, I, you know, I, I kind of toiled over this. I'm like, should I give exa- like exact examples? Should I, do I need to spell it out for you what these things are? Do I need to tell you what these distractions are? Do I need to like actually write it out and get, you know, got a new marker board this week? Do you want me to write them all down and just tell you exactly what needs to, you know, these distractions? I, I, don't, I don't feel like I need to do that. I can do that in coming weeks if I feel like it's not getting through. But I mean, you should be able to define this yourself, what the distractions are. Any other door that you're, you're, you're basically trying to go through other than Jesus, it's illegitimate. It doesn't take you really where you want to go. These opportunities we think like for ourselves, like I said, these opportunities for our kids or whatever, we think like, I'm going to do this or we're going to do this or we're going to be this busy, we're going to run from here to there. Now I'm giving exact examples, but like, you get what, you get what I'm saying. Like, like it, it's an illegitimate door. It doesn't actually, it, it will not lead you to where your family wants to go. Jesus is saying here in John 10 that he offers an opportunity, meaning he offers us a moment of decision. It's really difficult to make a decision when you've got lots of doors to choose from, right? That's, that's the problem. I think that's, that, that's where we get tripped up. That's where we get slowed down. It's like, I, I've got all of these options here. I've got door one, two, three, four, five, all the way down the, down, down the row. And like, how do I pick? How do I choose? Look at this, this thought with me. When Jesus says, I am the door, he is revealing to us that he is the singular access point that we are required to go through if we desire to experience the kind of life we were originally designed to possess. I think I gave that to you out of, out of order. <laughs> Look at this thought with me. When your vision of the kingdom and the abundant life increases, your options will de- decrease. Okay? Let, let, stop right there. When your vision of the kingdom 
and the abundant life Jesus says he brings in John 10, 10, I've come that they may have life and life to the full. When, when that becomes your vision, then all of your options decrease, meaning there's less doors. And it makes it a lot easier to walk through the right door when you have less options. Jesus is the door, and the door provides a moment of decision. Am I going to walk through it or not? Am I going to walk through that door or not? Am I going to try to get to the life that I want through an alternative means, through an alternative access point? This third, this third thing, I, uh, let me just show you about how we relate to Jesus as a door is this. It's the door provides access. Provides access. The door lets you in, right? The door lets you in. I mean, you, you, you are outside the building, and once you've walked through the door, you are now inside the building. The door has uh, granted you access. I remember uh, a few years ago, I was still, I was still going uh, to school and, and uh, was driving over to Cedar Rapids once a week uh, to take night classes, and uh, I'd get home at like 10 o'clock at night. Everyone would be asleep. I remember this one particular time I'd get home, and uh, my wife has locked all the doors, and I did not have a key to the house. And I, I, you know, because I just had the garage door opener, and we don't ever, you know, you don't ever lock the, the door going into the house except at night when everyone goes to bed. It's always unlocked. So I get home, and, and I can't get in. And I, I'm calling her, and I'm calling her, and I'm, I'm literally I'm outside for like 30 minutes. I'm like, am I ever going to get into my house? Like, the door is there. It's just not providing me any sort of access to where I want to be. I'm like so close, you know? I'm like so close to where I want to be. I can, I, I mean, I, I, I have this, this picture, this image like of my bed and how warm it is and how tired I'm getting. And like, all my family is asleep, just dreaming about you know, whatever, sunshine and lollipops and whatever, and I'm sitting here, like, trying to get into my home. But it's locked. And the very thing that's supposed to provide access to me is actually preventing me. Like, I can't get in. Can't get in. And what I realized when I thought about that story this week is that there's a big difference between seeing a door and actually going through it. Big difference. There's a big difference between knowing what a door is and how it functions and actually walking through that doorway. Big difference. There's a big difference between knowing the facts about Jesus and actually trusting Jesus, depending on Jesus, relying on Jesus. What Jesus is saying here in John 10 as he's rebuking this corrupt leadership in the Pharisees is he's saying, you have to enter you actually have to go through. You actually have to come to the Father through Him. He's the access point into the life that you so desperately desire. And for a second time, if you're taking notes, in proper context, when Jesus says, I am the door, He is revealing to us that he is the singular access point that we are required to go through if we desire to experience the kind of life we were originally designed to possess. He says, I'm the door. And if you want that life, you've got to go through me. We talked last week a little bit about how you know, Jesus is the way, 
and about how just exclusive that sounds and just how like it can kind of just repulse us a little bit and like or make it very difficult in the cultural context today where like, man, that's just not acceptable in culture today. Exclusion, especially with religious things. And so it can make us very, very uncomfortable. And while Jesus is the exclusive one and only pathway to the Father, the, 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 the heart behind all this the, 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 the motive in his language isn't to keep people out. The motive here is to invite people in. Like he knows how tired we are. He knows the desperation that exists in our soul. He knows how worn out we get. And he said, like, you want life to the full? Like, I, I've got you. Like, I, I, I have it for you. All you have to do is enter through me. Don't try to find it any other way. Don't try to walk through this door or that door. It's not going to lead to where you want to go. He says, if you want to find life and life to the full, come get it through me. Come get it through me. Years ago, there was a father who had a really unique relationship with his son, and they had something in common. They, they both shared a love for rare art, rare paintings. So this father and this son, they would often travel around and they would go look at art galleries and they, would, uh, they, they, they enjoyed doing this together. They would look at some of the, 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 the most famous you know, paintings that you could, you could find. And eventually they, they began to develop a bit of a collection themselves. The father was quite wealthy and as they you know, uh, developed this, this passion for art, in rare paintings, they began to collect their own, you know, from the who's who's. I mean, they had, they had an incredible art collection, and people began to find out about this. It actually became well known that, that this, this family had a collection of all of these rare paintings. Well, eventually the son grows up, and as he gets older, he has to go off and fight in the war. And the father and the son have this very uh, close relationship, and it just, it just tears the, the, the father apart, and he, he's worried you know, to death, and he prays, and every day he's just worried that he's, he's going to get you know, that, that, that note or that knock on the door, and time goes by. Eventually, one day he hears a knock at the door, and he goes to the door, and it's the news he's, he's dreaded. He, he finds out that his son has actually died, in the war, and he's just, he's just destroyed, as, as you could imagine, and, and uh, just can't believe that this is his life. And time goes by, he gets another knock at the door, and this time it's from someone who is presenting him a painting, and it's a, it's a portrait of his son. And the thing about this, this portrait is it's, it's really not that good. I mean, he could, he could make out that this was supposed to be his son. I mean, it's better than, like, my four-year-old's. Uh, but it's, it, it's not like a great painting. It's certainly not the caliber of like what they're used to. But this painting like mattered so much to him because it's like it's his, it's his son, right? And he, and he cherished it. In fact, he took down uh, o- o- over the fireplace this rare painting he had and he, he put this portrait of his son above the fireplace. Well, years go by, the father finally dies. And when he dies, there's no family to inherit their possessions. So they, they do an auction for the estate. 
and people are literally coming from all over because of this rare art collection. And they're going, like, we got we to be there. And so, I mean, it is, it is packed. There are all of these people sitting there for this auction, waiting for their chance to bid on some of this rare art. So the auction starts, and they bring out the very first item. And the very first item of the auction is this portrait of the sun. And everyone's like, really? Like, come on. Like, this is clearly not the piece of art that they came for. And so, you know, the auctioneer begins, and, you know, do I have $10? Do I have 20 I mean, finally, a, uh, the, the neighbor who lived close by knew how much this painting meant to the father, and so he, he decides to, to, to give 50 bucks and figures he'll, he'll buy it just out of respect for the family. And so he bids 50 bucks and gets this painting. And everyone else is just getting excited now. Okay, that, that one's over. Now we're moving on to the rest of the collection. And then the auctioneer abruptly ends the auction. He says it's, he says it's, it's over. He says, actually, uh, the auction has concluded. And everyone's like, we just are getting started. And so the auctioneer pulls out the will from the father. And this is exactly what it reads. If you want to throw this up on, on the screen, it just says this one line. It says, whoever gets the son gets it all. Whoever gets the son gets it all. Would you stand with me this morning? He is the door. He is the only access point into the kind of life that your soul really longs for. And when you get the son, you get it all. Would you bow your heads with me here this morning? Father, I just thank you for your goodness in this place. I thank you, Jesus, for who you are. That you're more than just a good teacher. More than just someone who lived 2,000 years ago and did some pretty incredible things. You're more than just a myth of a good man who lived a long time ago. We come together today and we recognize, we magnify, we lift up the name of Jesus, because you are the God of it all. And Lord, I pray in this place, Lord, for any of us under the sound of my voice who are, who are attempting to find the meaning of life or the kind of life we want through some alternative access point, maybe it's through acquiring some type of wealth, maybe it's through pursuing some type of relationship, Maybe it's, it, it, it's through acquiring different possessions, whatever it is, whatever we find ourselves guilty of, God. I pray for every person under the sound of my voice, God, that we would reject all of these other doors. We would develop in ourselves this vision of the kingdom, this vision of the abundant life that you have for us. And all of our options as, as a result would become so narrowed that our vision, that our eyes, that our focus would be on you, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And that we would walk through that door into the life that you promise us. In Jesus' name.